I got banned in the same week by Facebook and Google. Hello and welcome to this episode of Shopify Masters, a podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Felix Tia. Whether you have traffic coming to your site or not is the difference between success or failure of an e-commerce business. And a lot of businesses drive sales by relying heavily on paid traffic, like Google AdWords and Facebook ads. But what if your ad account gets banned? Game over, right? That was the dilemma in which John Murphy and his business, E-Bike Generation, found themselves. John had to shift to another way of driving traffic to his store and eventually 10x'd his revenue and is now a seven-figure business. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Felix. It's a, it's a real honor. I've been listening to the podcast for years. Awesome. Glad to have you here. So you started an e-commerce business because you had to support a specific lifestyle. Tell us more about what your life was like at that time and how an e-commerce business has helped. Back in 2017, uh, I was working for General Electric in finance, and I was working every hour of the day, uh, working in the during the financial quarters. So every I, I, I would miss Christmas, Easter, and then in June and September, it was just work like 15 hours a day for like 20 days straight, and it was it was brutal. And I really didn't, I just really didn't like the job. And my, my wife has a very good position, very high role in her company. She's the director of a company. And every time she would have an opportunity to relocate and improve her career, we would always have to sit down and say, okay, do we move again? Do we relocate again? And, and we would because there were always really good opportunities. But I would find myself reinventing myself again and moving to a different city and finding a new job. And uh, when I was working for GE, I, I just figured that there needs to be another way. I need to be able to make some money online somehow or, you know, like do something for myself. And I think like like a lot of founders, uh, I read the, the four-hour work week and, and I figured, I think I have an idea. So I just went down the rabbit hole of countless YouTube videos about how to make money online and drop shipping and affiliate marketing and and it just kind of spiraled from there. So was e-bikes your first industry that you focused in or were there other kind of projects along the way that led you to e-bike generation? I briefly launched a Shopify store selling, let's say, off-grid equipment for preppers. You know, the preppers in the US, they want to have like go bags and equipment that they can use and uh, in case they, they, you know, well, it, as they say, as the, uh, as the S hits the fan, I started trying to source things and what i was finding online was there was this um very easy way to start a shopify store and it was like a drop shipping using aliexpress and oberlo and i started finding products and doing that and but after about four weeks i realized that it really wasn't a really good business model and that there needed to be a better way i found after about four weeks i shut that store down and then i started again uh, i went through a few courses and then there was like a whole selection, let's say like a niche selection process where you would look for a product in a certain price range that doesn't weigh too much. It's not too complicated. And the more boxes the object, the product or niche ticks, then it's probably a viable niche to go into. And for me, uh, at the time, e-bikes uh, ticked most of those boxes. So there was a little bit of a clinical strategy. It wasn't, I hadn't ridden an e-bike uh, for about two years after I launched my store. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't something I was familiar. I didn't choose like a passion or anything. It was a bit more, it was a bit more, uh, research oriented, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, I think a lot of listeners are or might be at the stage where they are trying to choose a niche, trying to choose a product. Can you say a little bit more about that process that helped you narrow down into e-bikes? Because as you, as you say, it wasn't necessarily like a passion of yours that made complete sense from the beginning. It was a methodical approach to arrive at e-bikes. Can you walk us through that methodical process? There are a lot of selection criteria, but some of the major the major ones were high price point. So for example, anything maybe like a thousand dollars or higher would, would be a good range just because, uh, when you're drop shipping, the margins are not great. They can be anywhere between 10 and 30%, but it's usually closer to the 10. Uh, so the higher price point means you have more margin at the end of the day with one sale. So instead of trying to sell like a $20 fidget spinner from China and needing to sell like 10,000 a month in order to make a living. That's a lot of customer service emails. That's a lot of transactions. It's a lot of, it's, it's a big headache. But if you can sell something for $1,000 and make maybe $250 or $200 of profit per sale, you don't have to sell as many. So it just, it becomes a more uh, cleaner operation, less customers. So it's more, it's a lot more manageable. So the price point is a big one. Uh, the weight is also important because uh, dropshippers will usually have to pay for the shipping afterwards. They'll buy the product from the from the supplier and then pay for shipping on top. So if it's a very heavy, like a grand piano, you, there won't be any margins left after you ship it. So the uh, the lighter, the better. The the price point and the, the shipping weight is are two very important factors. Another important factor would be: Are there enough domestic suppliers that can keep you with enough product on the store. So for example, for e-bikes, there are probably a hundred different e-bike brands in the US alone. If we have like 10 brands or more, um, you will have enough enough options to, you know, to, to display on the store. You don't have to be able to recruit all of those suppliers and have an, a dealership arrangement with them. But if you can become an authorized dealer for enough of them, you will have enough variety on the, on the store for it to be potentially uh, successful. While you're looking for a lot of suppliers, you also don't want to find too many people already dropshipping those brands because then it's probably already very saturated and very competitive. It's, it's helpful if you can find stores dropshipping the products because it means that those suppliers are open to that type of an arrangement and you don't have to have a brick and mortar store, but you don't want to find too many either. So if you find a couple, it's proof of concept. If you find 25 or 30 other stores already selling it, it's probably very competitive. So then there are other things like um, how technical is the product? If it's a very complicated thing and you could imagine a very hefty customer service follow-up afterwards, like, like the assembly, the electronic parts, those sort of things, that would be um, still a very good niche to go into, but go in with your eyes open knowing that uh, the customer service aspect will be uh, heavier, would be a heavier lifting than something that's just like a, a chair. You can ship it and then it's done. But something maybe like a 3D printer or a drone or something very technical could be more demanding. What was the process to become an authorized dealer for some of these top e-bike brands in the US? It just starts by reaching out to the to the brand and by calling. It's best to call on the phone because, you know, the brands get lots of emails all the time. And if you send an email and say, hey, you know, I, I want to become an authorized dealer for your brand. I have this website. It's usually better to be done over the phone because... If you can get somebody on the phone from the uh, friend, 
uh, they may have questions for you like how long have you been in business how many you know how many units do you normally or do you expect to sell what are your marketing strategies going to be if we sign you know if we agree with you agree to sign you up and then you can have that dialogue it's hard in the beginning because you may not have sold anything before and you may not have a strategy yet and you just have a, a store with a few products on there and you're just you're at the beginning but usually honest honesty goes a long way but we're just explaining what you plan to do and what you hope uh, you can accomplish by implementing certain marketing strategies and how you plan to get traffic to the website and how you plan on promoting their products specifically. But usually like some suppliers are completely against it because they want brick and mortar stores because uh, it just it, it's a business model that's easier for them. They can sell the bikes up front and then ship them and then it's not their problem anymore. Where it's a little bit more dynamic if they have a bunch of dealers but they're sitting on all of the stock themselves and then they send then they're shipping them one by one as orders come in so uh, but if they're open to the uh, to the concept uh, it's it's usually a very easy conversation yeah you mentioned earlier about how you want to avoid finding saturated markets as more dealers are coming into this space how do you make sure that you remain competitive and that e-bike generation is the go-to place when someone's looking for an e-bike like yours well, in, in my specific case, one of the most pivotal things I did to, uh, to differentiate my store after it became very, very saturated was to deliberately go after just one specific demographic that may use or may want an e-bike. And there are a lot of demographics because they're like just everyday people going from A to B, could be commuting to the office. Could be people that just want to reduce their carbon footprint. It could be people that have like a bum knee and they just want to get around without any sort of ailment or pain. Uh, or then there are some I sell specifically to hunters. And that's a very, very specific demographic. But by doing that, I found that it was a lot easier to talk on a deeper level to one demographic than trying to be everything to everybody. While it was very scary in the beginning doing that and deliberately being polarizing and cutting out over 90% of my potential customers, it was absolutely game-changing for me because everything became easier. Marketing, email, messaging on the website, everything became about how an e-bike is going to elevate your hunt and and then hunters really were drawn to it. So uh, that's how I did it. Um, there are probably smarter people around with a, with a different strategy, but that worked very well for me. Yeah, I think the intuition is that let's go bigger, let's try to grow the market, let's expand into more markets. But you went the opposite way and narrowed in on a specific market. How did you specifically choose to go after hunters? In the beginning, I was trying to sell e-bikes to everybody. And I noticed that were, there were one or two brands that I was a dealer for, and they were hunters that built e-bikes, and they were selling to other hunters. They were marketing to hunters. And they were a higher price point, so the margins were very good, and they were higher quality bikes. So there was there were also less issues afterwards as well, because obviously the better quality product that you can sell, the happier the customer, the less customer service work involved, and it's just a win for everybody. It made sense that if I could sell more of those bikes, I wouldn't have to sell as many. All the cogs in the machine would have less of a load because it's less customer service, less emails, less issues. Uh, more happy customers, so more positive reviews. It just made sense. So I, I decided early on to just go deeper into that specific area. Yeah, and it's a decision that can be difficult when you are, again, saying that you wanted to narrow in on a market. Was it difficult logistically setting up anything new, ordering any new inventory? Like, What was involved in actually shifting the entire business in that direction? 
some of the, the scary things were actually removing product, removing brands that just didn't fit the just didn't fit the image or didn't fit the demographic, like the very small folding electric bikes that you could just pick up and put on your arm, for example. Those sort of things that do really well in the city. Uh, they sell very well. They're not very expensive. So they're usually the, the entry point for people that can afford maybe the entry-level bikes. Uh, so those bikes would sell themselves, really. Uh, so by removing those and then going after brands that were more fit the, the physical bike that I was looking to sell, so I was so I was really eliminating some brands and then trying to onboard other brands that were closer to that style of bike. I'm chatting with John Murphy, founder of eBike Generation. They're a seven-figure online retailer of high-end e-bikes for hunters. So John, you got the authorized dealer partnership set up. Walk us through what happened after that. How did you prepare to launch the actual store and in business? When you go through like a course to figure out how to like how to launch a Shopify store, how to get suppliers and all, the it's usually the all of those courses all teach one thing that you build out the store, get suppliers, and then run Google shopping ads because that's the fastest way to your first sale. It it kind of validates the whole process and the business model. So it, it was basically, you know, go on to Google AdWords, set up Google shopping campaigns and then start running traffic and then try to iterate on the traffic that's coming in to just kind of hone in on better quality traffic from those ads. And that's that's kind of like the initial playbook. Yeah, so you were eventually, though, banned from running these ads on Facebook and on Google. What happened? What I didn't realize was at the time, I was, I was running ads and I was making some sales. The store was profitable, nothing exceptional. I was still working in GE for my day job. What I found out later was uh, I got banned in the same week by Facebook and Google. And it turns out that uh, Google considers e-bikes as vehicles under the vehicle category. And you're not allowed. It's a Google shopping violation. So they just shut me down with it without any issue because uh, e-bikes were actually not supposed to be uh, on Google Shopping in the first place. Everybody still runs ads for for electric bikes, um, but it seems to be like if you know if uh, they run a check and they find e-bikes are advertised on their on their platform, they just shut you down. And the ban hammer came down in June 2019, uh, both Google AdWords and Facebook. So that was, that was painful because that was my only source of traffic. And this is only a year or so into your business. It was, how much of an impact did it make? Did you reconsider maybe this isn't going to work out? Like It seems like a pretty big hit to any business, especially early on. How were you able to kind of bounce back from that? It was a real cold shower because I was finally being profitable monthly. And you know, I sat down with my wife and I said, okay, I really want to quit my job. I think this is going to work. And we agreed. Let's wait until it's, I don't know, like $5,000 net profit every month consecutively for 12 months. Or I think that was more or less the, 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 the decision we came to. And I was, and I was, I was about there and we were, I was ready to quit my job. And then when the, uh, when the suspensions came down on my accounts, all my traffic went away overnight. Uh, so I went, I went from getting, I don't know, 10,000 visitors a month, 100% from paid traffic to then something like 15 or 20 visits a week to the store. So the idea that I may not be able to ever quit my job was a hard pill to swallow. I think that's the only reason I didn't quit because I had kind of checked out in the office. I wasn't a very good employee anymore. And I was just focusing on my e-commerce business in the evenings. 
that's all I wanted to do. And I was thinking if I could spend an extra eight hours a day working on my e-commerce business, it could be a lot better. So I'd grown to resent the day job. So I couldn't go back to just say, okay, I guess I work in this job full time now. I just decided I'm going to have to find another way. A lesson that you learned was to not rely on paid traffic, but instead focus on organic traffic and search engine optimization. Did you have experience here? How were you able to basically pivot your marketing plan like that? Yeah, I, I had no experience. Uh, like everything I was doing in e-commerce, I was learning as I was going. And I realized that I was going to have to get some organic traffic somehow. And what I what I would noticed was, was that the um, on the page one of Google, there were a lot of results that were affiliate marketing websites. So there were affiliate stores, affiliate websites promoting products like top X for Y, and then they would link to Amazon mostly, or they would link to like a, a brand, big brand. And I noticed that what they were doing was they were generating content and getting it to page one and then sending the traffic to a product page for somebody else. I went down the rabbit hole. I started listening to all of the podcasts by affiliate marketers, like Niche Pursuits is a good one, uh, Doug Cunnington. And so I was I was in their Facebook groups. I was listening to the podcasts. Uh, I even paid somebody, someone for an hour of their time. At the time, it seemed like a lot of money. But I was basically just, you know, just I need an hour of your time. Uh, let me just ask you a bunch of questions. If you don't like the questions, you can hang up and, you know, you keep the money. I just uh, I just really want to figure out how you guys do it. I think because I was in e-commerce, they didn't see me as like a threat or like competition because it was a different market. Uh, what I found was, was that the affiliate marketers were doing, they have to do a really good job. If they're writing content and they don't get on page one, then they don't make a sale. It's either page one or you have a hobby, a blog hobby, and that's it. So stalking all of these affiliate marketers and finding out how they do it and learning all of their tricks and strategies I started changing it. So I, I tried to modify it a little bit for my for my website because what they were doing, a lot of the, what they were doing would work, but a lot of the things that they were doing wouldn't work, but not very, not very complicated things. Like for example, uh, there are lots of ranking factors that Google rewards as, as positive. And one of those is time on site. So the longer somebody goes down the rabbit hole of reading your content, even if they're clicking from one product, one page to another page, the longer they stay on your website, the more relevant that result seemed to be. So they get higher rankings. So affiliate marketers would uh, randomly link from one blog post to another blog post and in a kind of a, like a spaghetti mess because time on site was very important for them. But I realized I couldn't do that because if I got somebody to my e-commerce store, which is hard in the beginning, and then I just bounced them from blog to blog to blog. I'd never get them to a product page and then they would never buy. So I had to be a little more clinical about the, the linking structure and how I get people to a blog post and then to a, to a product page or collection page. And it was always that very straight line, you know, it's blog, product page, check out. So I started creating content like theirs, but tweaked. So it, might, it would be more effective to get people to the product pages. And then there was a whole lot of things I had to learn how to get backlinks and how to, you know, do all of the things that would then support the content I was writing. So it would, it would be more likely to rank on page one, but, and it's a, it's a slow process and, you know, it takes a long time to write good, helpful content and then get it to rank. But, uh, it definitely worked because it, it kept me in business. So how long did it take for, for your business before things turn around again? Talk about six months to see after six months, I was getting my traffic had surpassed what I was paying for in the, in, uh, the year before. 
I didn't have a lot of content. I had only had about maybe three or four good pieces of content. Uh, I was getting more traffic I was paying for, and I was making more sales. So like, just to give you an idea, 2018 was the first full year that I was in business and all of my traffic was uh, from Google shopping or Facebook retargeting. And I ended the year around 330K revenue. Uh, so that was like, that wasn't profit. That was just revenue. At the end of 2019, with the extra traffic I was getting, mostly came from organic because the banhammer came down in early June. Um, I finished the year about 900K. And then in 2020, I was 100% running organic traffic and I did 3.1 million. In, in the space of about 18 months, I 10X'd revenue without paid traffic, which is a, it's a fantastic result. So you said there were three to four pieces of content that were responsible for more traffic than the paid traffic that you were running before and more sales. What was the content and why do you think it worked? The content initially was, it started, I, I've optimized the content over time. In the beginning, it was just a listicle piece of content. Like I think it was like top seven electric bikes for hunters in 2019 or something like that. And it was doing okay because uh, electric bikes for hunting was a kind of a new concept. It was, there weren't a lot of people deliberately going after those type of keywords where everybody was trying to rank for electric bike, very broad uh, term, lots of search volume, but lots of competition like affiliate marketers. But I was trying to go after uh, e-bikes for hunters and my content was very e-bike for hunters specific. So I was able to rank, but then when more people started copying me and in some cases even copying the content i had to i had to make the content a lot better a lot more helpful so i started building out the content to be a lot more helpful so when people are finding the content they're learning about the concept of hunting with an e-bike and all of the do's and don'ts and all of the misconceptions about hunting on an e-bike and answering questions uh, and it, it just turned into a big behemoth piece of content that uh, if somebody read that piece of content, they wouldn't then go have, have to go back to the results page and read more to make a, a buying decision. So the more helpful I could be in the content, the more likely I was going to be able to get people to that buying decision. And since the ban, you've 10x, right, from 300,000 to 3 million in annual revenue. Was it just a factor of just more content drives more traffic or is there some more nuance or something else that's involved in making that kind of step uh, from 300,000 to 3 million. Yeah, so I did I did create more content uh, because the a lot of the strategy would be to create more content, more bite-sized content and then link to the main piece of content. So like for example, if I've got 50 pieces of content uh, on my website uh, all about electric hunting bikes, Google may not know which one is the most relevant piece of content for that search term. But if 49 of them are all linking to the other one, then Google can quickly crawl my website and go, "Okay, that one with the other where the other 49 are linking to it as a reference, that's the important one, or that's the most relevant piece of content on this search term. And all of those other pieces of content sort of lift up the, what they call a skyscraper piece of content uh, to higher rankings. Um, and it, it sort of creates that uh, topical authority on your website. So Google recognizes you as an expert, and it's also able to identify which piece of content to, to rank because the linking structure on the website has sort of making it made it easy for Google to read all of that information. Also, when the more the more I was writing about hunting on an e-bike, there was a, the search volume increased also because when I started writing for hunters, 
uh, all of the numbers that were coming out on Ahrefs or in the Google Keyword Planner, the search volume for electric hunting bikes was zero. So in theory, it was an absolutely terrible idea. But I knew customers were calling me and they were hunters and they were curious about the concept and they'd, they'd saw an advertisement on TV by a big brand that was selling e-bikes for hunting. So I knew there was potentially a lot of people looking for it online, even if the numbers hadn't caught up with latest information. So uh, I think the search volume, the search volume still is very small. It's still less than 300 search, 3,000 um, searches per month. But um, I started ranking for other keywords as well, like fat tire electric bike, which is a broader one with more search term, that sort of thing. Uh, so I started getting more traffic to those same pieces of content. But um, one other thing I did was, um, which helped a lot with, to bring in more traffic was I decided to team up with all of those affiliate marketers that I'd been stalking early on because what I realized was Google will only give me, no matter how good I become at SEO, Google will only allocate two results out of the top 10 to the same website. So even though I can occupy spot one and spot two, there's 80% of the results are not mine and they're going to Amazon or they're going to someone else. So I, I created an affiliate program using an app I found on Shopify and I went on to page one and I started recruiting all of those affiliate websites to link to me instead of Amazon. So they were already on page one. So not only was I getting some traffic from occupying the top spot in Google, I was also indirectly occupying like five other spaces on page one. So I kind of monopolized the uh, the whole page. And that's that's been absolutely game-changing for me as well because even though I give away a commission, those are sales that would have went to somebody else. So I've kind of, you know, monopolized it a little bit. Um, but that was, that was a very important step as well. So you've 10x the revenue. What is the next goal for e-bug generation? Well, I so at the at the end of 2020, and I did over 3 million, and then I, I just fell short of 3 million 2021. I had huge aspirations of like a bigger number. Uh, then this year has been has been slower, so I, I I won't I won't reach those numbers this year. I'll still do multiple seven, but it seems to be that um, during COVID and demand was very high. Even though I didn't have anything in stock to sell for about eighteen months, sales were coming in. Uh, demand was huge. The U.S. shoppers were getting free money from the government and. People wanted to be able to commute without being in buses and transport. And what I found, what I found that this year is, is that uh, I was expecting it to keep going that way. But then uh, this year has been a little bit trying to like driving with the brakes on. I think I'm going to see how this year lands because this year will be, I think, the first year without any sort of uh, external economic or you know world influence. So I'll, I should, I still should land at around two million mark this year. Uh, I'm still doing really well. Uh, I think I need to be looking out like maybe five years from now uh, rather than, you know, what am I going to do this quarter? Because I was getting very excited with all those big numbers and now it's it's coming down a little bit. So I guess I'm going to see where, where I end up at the end of December this year and then and then see if I can incrementally grow it, grow it, grow it from there by just taking up more, more space, getting more affiliates onboarded, getting better quality suppliers on the store and then just trying to gain more market share. I like the plan and the mindset. Thank you so much for joining me today. John Murphy, founder of eBike Generation. They're a seven-figure online retailer of high-end e-bikes for hunters. Thank you so much. Thanks, Felix. And that's all the time we have this week. Come hang out with us next time on Shopify Masters. Again, I'm Felix Tia. Take care.